Warm Regards is brought to you by Arcadia Power, the first company to offer a nationwide community solar program. Whether you live in an apartment or a house in California or Kentucky, you can now get solar savings with Arcadia Power anywhere. Arcadia's online platform allows anyone who pays a power bill to subscribe to solar panels from projects across the country and get savings on their monthly bill. Learn more about Arcadia's community solar program and find out how much you can save at arcadiapower.com solar. That's arcadiapower.com solar. Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse here in Tucson, Arizona. It's been a long week. We're still processing everything that's happening, just like all of you, and we might never understand it, but it, it is clear that the consequences for the climate are immediate and have already begun. On Sunday, just five days after the election, Reuters quoted a source within Trump's White House transition team saying that they are already looking into the best way to remove the United States as quickly as possible, not only from the Paris Agreement, but from the UNFCCC, the 1992 treaty that forms the foundation for all formal international efforts to prevent dangerous climate change. This is essentially a giant middle finger to the rest of the world. Millions of people for hundreds of years will curse this man's name, and I feel it deep in my heart. Now, of course, I cannot tell any of you what to do about this, but if you are ever, ever considering drawing attention to the dangers that a Trump presidency presents and the generational importance of climate change, now is the time. This week's episode will be a little bit different. We've recorded three separate interviews with leaders on the environment and asked them what they are doing in response to the election results. We've asked them what we can do. So let's get right to it. Our first interview is with Jeff Hayward, who is Vice President of Landscapes and Livelihoods for the Rainforest Alliance. He spoke to us from Marrakesh, Morocco, where he is attending COP22. The mood there, as you might expect, was thrown into disarray once it became apparent that Trump was the winner. But he says there's still abundant hope that the rest of the world will move forward on climate change with or without the United States. Well, the sun rose in Marrakesh this morning. It was a bright, sunny day. I think people feel a lot better today than they felt yesterday. Uh, yesterday, it was surreal. Uh, people were speechless. They were expressionless. They seemed spellbound. And any conversation that you heard on the margins was all about Trump and the U.S. elections. A lot of people really didn't know where to turn to, uh, how things would progress. I think they felt like it was a wasted day. Uh, people had a hard time having a coherent thought. Uh, but um, you know, as things progressed, I think people really saw that there's, there's a call to action here. And there's a reason to be positive about why we're in Marrakesh and how quickly the Paris Accord was agreed to and how important and urgent climate change remains and that whatever uh, might happen because of, of the U.S. elections and the disruption, really, that it entails for 
U.S. climate negotiations and U.S. climate policy, um, we all have to work harder. And if we're here to fight climate change, then we have to do our jobs a little bit harder. But we got to stay inspired and motivated and, and maintain hope. To me, yeah, I think you're. I think you're exactly right that this is a call to action. Um, I think that maybe staying motivated might be a problem in the short term. But, but you know, like I've said before, the that Trump cannot change the laws of physics. He doesn't change the fact that carbon dioxide increases the temperature and and adds risk to the global system. So. Um, so I think that, that that all those fundamental reasons for addressing climate change remain, and and um, it's just sort of a, a way of uh, you know there may be a, a, a space of time for regrouping and kind of considering next steps right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was interesting. One of the first um, side events that I heard after the news, uh, a Chinese uh, spokesperson was actually talking about how they're the leader now. And in some ways, in some ways, they are the leader now. And, and India is a leader. And Brazil is a leader. And there are a lot of other countries and their, and their populations that have their own reasons to be concerned about climate change. And they have their own domestic policies and actions and programs. And they're going to keep moving ahead with those. And they may actually be the ones that come up with some of the technological innovations, some of the innovations in how, in how forests and agriculture are managed better. And the land sector contributes about 25% of emissions. So it is really important for countries that have a big land base, have a big forest base, uh, those countries that have palm oil, those countries that have cattle ranching, that they work as hard as they can to address those challenges. And, and we see that happening. And it's not something that we've seen in the past. I mean, I've been working on trying to get deforestation out of supply chains for 25 years. And I've never seen so much commitment in such a short period of time. Now, whether that commitment and the shift uh, gets locked in, whether the action is real, whether there's progress on the ground, uh, that's what remains to be seen, and that's what we need. You know, that's what we need to be motivated and, and work harder on. Our next interview is with Catherine Crocker, an evolutionary ecologist at the University of Michigan and a member of the Kaw Nation. Days after the election, she traveled to support the water protectors of the Standing Rock Sioux in North Dakota. As I record this intro on Tuesday, exactly one week after the election, Catherine is recounting on Twitter at. Cricket Crocker, a vivid description of her first days at the front lines of the effort to prevent the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. So joining us now is Catherine Crocker. She's a PhD student at the University of Michigan, and she's also a member of the Ka Nation. And so Catherine, thank you so much for joining us, uh, especially because in the next couple of days, you're headed west, right? Yes, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to going out to Standing Rock to join the water protectors. But of course, I'm also pretty terrified as well, because as you know, it's not exactly a safe place to be right now. Yeah, I imagine. Um, so how what was that like, sort of balancing your identity as a, as a scientist and um, as a, a, a member of the Kaw Nation? Well, that's, um, gosh, that's such a good question. So it started out sort of... Um, 
I guess it's gone um, in a progression for me. So at, at the beginning, I I immediately wanted to go, and then I quickly changed to trying to work as a scientist behind the scenes to increase awareness and maintain awareness. So one thing I was able to do with a couple of really wonderful collaborators on Twitter is write a, a letter from a scientific perspective advocating for stopping construction until environmental impact assessments had been done. Um, that helped for a while in terms of making me feel like I was helping and also keeping awareness going. But then in um, late October, when the violence really started to escalate, I, I realized that I needed to actually go. And so in the last few weeks, I've been working on a way to be able to leave campus, be able to leave my undergraduate mentees, be able to leave my projects for a little while to go be with these people who look exactly like me and are be tr being treated not at all like people. Wow, that's really powerful. I mean, I it's it's interesting too because I um, you know I follow you and some other native activists on Twitter, and I but I also follow I'm a part of Climate Twitter, and one thing that's really struck me is that a lot of folks are tweeting about this or or, or posting about it from the perspective of um, you know Standing Rock being about climate change, and then I see this other conversation happening about native sovereignty. And so it's just, I was wondering if you'd be willing to comment about that at all in terms of what it's like to sort of see the solidarity, but people maybe not seeing the entire picture from a climate justice perspective. Yeah, I so I know that a lot of um, native activists do get a little frustrated. Um, in particular, I think in late September and mid-October, there was a big push by um, Nature Conservancy and a few other organizations to... Um, make this a climate issue, like climate primarily. And I think that the reason that Native activists have been frustrated is that their voices have been co-opted. So there have been this primarily white um, set of organizations saying, oh, you know, the Native activists want to support our efforts to save the planet instead of we would like to support the Native activists in their efforts to save the planet and also protect their sovereignty and human rights. Hu yeah, hugely um, important distinction there. Um, yeah, so right. what I'm really interested in, in, in sort of the emotions that you're feeling now as you're preparing to go and potentially, you know, put your body and your life on the line for this cause. Um, what's going through your head? Uh, mostly what's going through my head is that um, this is something that's incredibly important for me to do. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be in STEM and also in activism lately because... You know, a lot of the comments I've gotten from people are, well, you know, it's really important and I know you have strong feelings, but, you know, you really need to consider how you're going to safeguard your objectivity or what, you know, impacts this is going to have on your career. And the conclusion I've come to is that anybody who accepts public funding really has a public duty to um, inform lay individuals, people who aren't in the academy of potential consequences of actions that corporations take, that individuals take, that may harm people. And as scientists, we know that this is a very dangerous thing. So I think a lot about that um, as I'm preparing to go. The other thing I've been thinking a lot about is how to explain to non-natives what this is like. And the closest I've been able to come is, um, imagine you were you know, on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and you knew a hurricane was coming. You had magically some, maybe a week of warning and you spent every day of that week going and trying to safeguard your possessions, your house, your, you know, your animals, your pets, your friends, your health. And every day while you were trying to do that, FEMA showed up and shot you with rubber bullets and tear gassed you on your own land while you were either praying with your friends for your own safety or trying to protect yourself. Um, 
And then imagine that instead of a hurricane that is a natural phenomenon that can't help itself, it's a, it's a corporation coming to make money off of the harm they'll cause. Here. Yeah. Also, I just um, saw that, that the, that the people constructing this pipeline um, are now planning to continue under the Missouri river without a permit. So I'm not really sure what's going on, on with that, but I imagine that the fight will, will ramp up in the next few days. Well, it's really a surprise to see that the uh, Dakota Access Company is uh, prepared to go against the Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Justice, and the Department of the Interior. Um, it's also really frightening to think about, you know, the level of militarization the, you know, publicly funded police have been willing to sustain in their efforts to protect this corporation's interests. Not the people working for the corporation, but the corporation's interests. So it's it's frightening to think about, and it's also really dismaying because, you know, we'd like to believe that we count as people too. And I think the, that while our voices being amplified is important, another important thing that can happen is allies, people who don't have, you know, particular skin in this racial justice game, keeping this conversation going, even when there are no people of color in the room, even mm-hmm. when there are no natives present. Mm-hmm. So... Um- what other things can we do? I know you've 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 talked about um, some of the, the the ways people can help who who have you know resources or means or energy. Um, what's most effective right now? What do you need? What do you guys need? So there are are a lot of things you can do. Things that you can spend money on are the Legal Defense Fund, the Standing Rock Tribes um, general account, or an, there's an Amazon wish list to support the Sacred Stone Camp. There are a lot of different numbers you can call from the National Guard Public Affairs to the Sheriff's Office in Morton County to the North Dakota Governor's Office, the Department of Justice, um, the White House comment line. You can also you know, spend a lot of time talking to other people who don't necessarily share an identity with any of the water protectors, but whose um, water or livelihood or research may be affected by this. We're going to pause the show here for just a minute to talk about a very cool new product from our sponsor, Arcadia Power. Have you ever thought about going solar, but you can't because you rent or your roof is too shaded? Well, now, for the first time ever, you can reduce your monthly bill with Arcadia Power's Community Solar Program. Arcadia Power is an online renewable energy company that's making solar savings more inclusive to homeowners and renters in 50 states. Arcadia's nationwide community solar program allows anyone who pays a power bill to subscribe to solar panels from projects across the country and get savings on their monthly bill no matter where they live. It only takes a few minutes to subscribe to solar panels online and start saving. Arcadia offers you a modern, personalized solar experience to track everything. Arcadia's dashboard provides real-time solar production monitoring, direct on-bill crediting, and savings analysis. You can also take advantage of energy-saving tips and efficient products to help you lower your bills even more. Learn more about Arcadia's community solar program and find out how much you can save at arcadiapower.com solar. That's arcadiapower.com solar. Our final interview is with Renee Lertzman, who works to understand the psychology of how we deal with environmental issues. Her words are especially useful in this time of shared anxiety and concern and uncertainty, and her message is one that gave me a lot of encouragement that what happens next is not entirely out of our control. I'm a psychosocial researcher, and my background is in psychology. I'm not a cognitive scientist. 
Um, what I'm really focused on is putting, putting in the center of our work on climate change, advocacy, communications, education, really putting in the center of that the need to understand at a very deep and fundamental level what is the psychological dimension of this work. And for me, that relates in part to how people make decisions, but it's much more than that. And a lot of what I'm doing um, is helping people sort of look at how climate change is more than just um, a cognitive and behavioral issue. It's an existential issue. And fundamentally, when we learn and become aware of the implications of climate change, it really is about, at, at the basic level, rethinking and reimagining who we are and who we are in relation to others and to our place and you know um, how we live and my sense is that we haven't yet really come to terms with what that means um, as far as how we can engage and and you know do all the things that we really need to be doing right now which is igniting uh, creative and imaginative responses to the issue so you know I'm really interested in exploring how do we take this recognition that um, the the issue and the science of um, what we know about climate change and the human impact on the environment how do we actually work with people in a way that supports you know our our abilities to to make the right decisions and and I think it's really important that we look beyond just the cognitive that we we really have to look at the emotional dimensions of this and the kinds of anxieties that this brings up for people and really you know really looking at what happens with anxiety right I mean anxiety is is often paralyzing and and immobilizing right and the other you know primary kind of um, issue or challenge with this topic is the enormous sense of powerlessness and lack of efficacy that people experience and th that may not be the reality right but what what is very easy it's very easy to go to that place of people sort of um opting out of any kind of involvement cognitively emotional and otherwise because it really does seem so big right it seems so vast and the tendency in the climate kind of space um, is to then simply kind of resort to either more alarming news more um, clarification of the science demystifying of the science or focusing only on solutions you know what can I do and let's make it more concrete and here's what you can do and what's happening is there's a whole area that's being you know vital area that's being missed that's being completely bypassed which is really looking at you know how people can come to terms with these issues in ways that um, are actually uh, likely to lead to a shift in what we do and you know our actual practices right so there's sort of like, um, you know, if you think about a triangle, 
You know, there's the raise awareness is kind of one part of the triangle. Raise awareness, make the urgency real, make it felt, make it really um, known. And then there's the other side of the triangle, which is here are the solutions, right? There are solutions. Don't feel powerless. Don't feel overwhelmed. Here are solutions. And what I'm trying to do in my work is say, well, actually, there's a place right between where those meet. And where those meet is the human kind of psyche, right? Where, where those meet is the, the way that humans process challenging, complex information that often that, you know, that can raise really hard dilemmas for people, really hard conflicts. And, and I feel, you know, really strongly that it's that area, it's that level of insight that the climate community needs to understand, like, right now. So, you know, that's my sense of urgency. As in like right? this week, As in this week, everything that's happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why I got in touch with you because I, I, I'm here in the Netherlands. I'm speaking, you know, to pretty large audiences that, you know, people are totally bewildered and hungry to understand how do we motivate and how do we activate people to take care of ourselves and our planet. And it's very, it's very, um, it's encouraging and it's moving to see that people are really like, okay, ready, right? Like people are really wanting to understand this. Um, and the, the fact is, is that the psychology of climate change, one, you know, it's still kind of in its early stages, right? And it's clearly ramping up, you know, there's all kinds of initiatives and books and, and projects coming out, but it's kind of in the early stages and, and, I, I'm, you know, sometimes I feel like we think we know what it is and it's really not necessarily the whole picture. And what I mean is like we tend to think the psychology of climate change is that it's too abstract. It's too far in the future. It's, um, you know, it's, it's too systemic, right? It's like our brains, our feeble brains can't process it. And I do actually challenge that in a, in a pretty big way. You know, humans have imagination and we have enormous capacity to imagine all kinds of things. So it's, I really think it's less about the cognitive shortcomings and it's much more about the, what's what I call affect or emotional dimensions that, that actually neurologically make it hard for us to take take in and learn, right? Because when, when we experience um, you know, anxiety and some fear and maybe some shame or guilt that could come up with these issues, it, it literally impairs our cognitive faculties. I mean, we know this now from neuroscience. So, so that puts us in a very uh, challenging position as educators and um, advocates. How do we then, if, if this is too scary and too overwhelming for people, then what do we do? Right? Like, mm -hmm. what are we supposed to do? And what's that's, the next step? Yeah. What's the next step? And that's where it gets really interesting and creative and, uh, you know, potentially innovative, which is how do we, the question is, how do we really um, create conditions that can cultivate the human capacity to really take this in? And we actually know quite a bit about, you know, some kind of elements that need to be in place to help people. Um, and some of these you've already, you know, some people on your show have already talked about. So, you know, they include um, feeling uh, safe and feeling like you're not, you know, that there's an absence of judgment 
and, um, and uh, moralizing, right? So the paradox of change is that we're far more likely to change when we feel that where we are is okay and we're not being kind of, um, that we're not bad and we're not wrong and we're not doing, you know, really awful things. That's the paradox is that we're more likely to make the changes that needed, need to be made if we have a sense that um, we have, um, you know, one that will be successful if we actually put the energy into it and get involved. And two, that we feel that it's coming from us as opposed to coming from the outside and someone kind of forcing us or pressuring us. So, you know, what I see happening is at a, this kind of mass collective level is there is this kind of anxiety going on that is not really being worked with or addressed very skillfully. And unfortunately, what happens is what, we've, what we're seeing right now. You know, which is that, that people tend to kind of latch on to the easiest, kind of most um, kind of accessible. The, the apocalypse part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, or, or focusing on, um, on a solution like the election, right? Mm -hmm. So, so oh, yeah. like the election was supposed to fix this and now it's not fixing us. So what are we going to do? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, so, you know, in an interesting way, the climate situation is calling on us to be, um, you know, more creative and imaginative and uh, innovative than maybe we ever have before. And, and that's painful, right? It's painful to, to change, you know, humans find change very painful, very hard. But it's also, and I, and I don't want to get all kind of Pollyanna about it, it's, it is an enormous opportunity as well. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not really interested in trying to frame climate change as some sort of opportunity for human consciousness to evolve. What I'm saying is that this is a, it is obviously an incredibly complex issue to engage people around. And from my vantage point, the, the, the ingredient that's missing that, that we have access to as a resource is precisely the, you know, what I'm talking about, which is the existential emotional dimension, not only, you know, focusing on how do we frame climate, right? Like how do, what the language we use and how do we talk about it with people, but really just recognizing that this is scary stuff. It's scary stuff. And, and humans kind of, you know, respond to that in, in certain ways. And so what does our work look like if we approach people from the, from the basic position of how can we support people to change and do things differently as opposed to how do we get people mm -hmm. to do convincing, what we, convincing, yeah. motivating, you know, I, I'd love to just remove that, that phrase entirely, you know, how do we motivate people? How do we get people? Um, I'm asked that pretty much every day. And I, and I try to gently kind of do a reframe and say, well, let, let's think about what, what our work is like if we think of our role as, you know, being about supporting and facilitating people to come to terms with a pretty intense situation that humans didn't intend to happen. And here we are, and it seems thanks to the internet, we know more about the scale of the issue than we've ever known before. 
And so, you know, I really don't buy that that lots and lots of people don't care about the issue. I think that most people are really overwhelmed and 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 hopefully that can awaken some compassion in us. You know, and I say us, those working to support a, a transition to uh, mitigate climate change effects, that it can awake some compassion for ourselves as well as for those that we're trying to to change. And it's it's a hard one. It's a it's a really tricky one to do. Um, but I think that's the only way forward. I I really see it that way. So I know so, I've just talked. I've just given you like a monologue. But no, this is perfect. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, Renee, what you've said is so important. I think that um, this is something that I um, have been dealing with in my own life. Um, I think I've said before in um, in my writing and to friends that one at least one day per week, I sort of just shut down. Like I read some sort of new science thing or... I see some sort of new setback and it just hits me in my gut that this is so hard what we're doing and I just don't know what the future will be like for my kids. Um, And I know that is such a common and cliche response, but, you know, from what you're saying, it seems like that is a source of energy that 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 people can once you address that once you acknowledge it and that you share it with others you know that you're not alone and you know that we have to work together and find these creative answers together and um for me once i admit that to myself that i'm not doing this by myself i it, it, it it takes the edge off a little bit where I feel like, okay, well, you know, write your next blog post or, you know, send your next email or call your next guest or whatever. Like this is something that's achievable for me today in this hour. And it's going to help ultimately move the needle forward in my own way of confronting the problem, if anything. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so, um, but yeah. one question, one question that I have is when you talk about creativity, um, what, what specifically do you mean? I mean, I know that the problem of climate change is sort of one of creativity in general. Like we're going to have to remake our cities to be carbon neutral. We're going to have to remake our transportation systems. We're going to have to remake our food systems. We're going to have to remake how we treat each other and how we, um, how we support uh, the countries on the front lines that didn't cause this problem, they're going to need support. And, um, I, I mean, all of that is, is breaking through the established ways of doing things and, and, and finding new ways, um, to work together. So, I, I mean, that, that to me is creativity, but I wonder if you had any, um, specific things that you had in mind. Well, um, so I talk about creativity in, a particular context, which is drawing on some of the psychological research that's really inspired me and informed my work, which is looking at the connection between creativity and our human need and capacity to experience ourselves as creative. Um, So you could also think of that as having a creative kind of um, influence in our world, in our lives and the capacity to care and to feel concern 
and to want the, the term in clinical psychology is reparation. So the link between creativity, care, and concern, and reparation, that, that whatever that is inside of us that wants to make repair, that wants to fix, that wants to um, mend what's been kind of broken or damaged, that's what we need to be focusing our energies on is how to cultivate that. And where I'm going with the, the emphasis on creativity is my fantasy that people working in climate think about their work as offering um, opportunities for people to maybe reflect and consider how they would like to be a part of something and contribute. And that, um, I meant to include contribute is really part of this too. This comes from um, psychologist Winnicott who talks about a phrase he has which is the two words to contribute, right? That we as humans uh, kind of have a need to contribute. But if we feel that those energy, that, that, um, you know, that capacity is not going to be, this goes back to something I said a few minutes ago, if it won't really pan out, then we, we won't really go there. And what we'll do is we'll focus on what we feel we can have impact on, which we know in our culture today is largely about what we consume and uh, grow in our garden or wear in our body or eat or whatever. So the idea here, um, it comes from the interviews I did for my research study, which became the book Environmental Melancholia, where I interviewed people who um, on the surface seemed kind of, you know, what we would call apathetic, you know, not very engaged, not very active in any kind of environmental movement or activity. But what I heard in the interviews over and over again, and subsequently in many additional interviews I've done, is that there's a lot of kind of untapped creativity happening right now because people don't necessarily recognize themselves and what's being offered. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like often organizations, they kind of, you know, they kind of have a menu of options. Like you can either sign our petition, you can donate, you can show up to an event, you can protest. And for a lot of people, I'm convinced that there's, there's a whole other array. <laughs> um, of potential ways to engage that maybe aren't really being offered. And um, my fantasy is that we could think about engaging people with climate change almost as a way of inviting people to imagine how they would, you know, ideal, you know, what it might look like to be a part of it. So, and, and not just climate, environmental issues in general. So it could be depending on our, you know, our uh, unique, um, offerings, right? Or what we have, um, our skills or what we enjoy doing really vary, right? So that's kind of what I mean is connecting creativity and the human need to be creative. I, I see that as almost like the greatest untapped resource, you know, renewable resource that we have is the human need and desire to be creative. And, and we know this when you look at education and working with, with people, especially in schools, that, you know, when you, again, it goes back to this question, how do we provide those kind of optimal conditions that really bring that out? And, you know, there's some of this that is going on now with, um, you're probably familiar with like challenges, like to spark innovation. So that's really a common, um, 
tactic that's used in a lot of organizations that comes right out of design thinking, right? Which is, you know, to spark innovation, you, you give a challenge. Just like I just saw that the Fuller Challenge is happening next week in New York, an amazing program that gives an award for solving these problems, uh, massive problems at scale. So, so we know that that works to give people a challenge, but for those, what about those that don't respond to the challenge? I don't, you know, I'm not the personality that is really attracted to a challenge. Um, I'm not really into competitions. I'm not really into games. You know, that doesn't work for me. And so that's kind of what I mean is to think uh, more openly and broadly about what does it look like to, um, you know, to, to engage people as uh, kind of creative participants in something bigger. Right. Yeah, to, to pour their anxiety that all that energy, that tension that's built up especially this week into something that um, starts us on the path to building a better world. Right. Um, But I want to say something really important about anxiety. It's really important not to see anxiety or sadness or despair or loss as bad things in themselves. That I think one of the most powerful things we could do is to simply acknowledge and name it and not push people to have to kind of get over it and channel it into being um, activated because it, that actually will happen. You know, in the, in the um, naming and acknowledging, you know, something powerful happens, people actually kind of move through it pretty quickly, if that makes sense. So I want to caution about that because I think there's a tendency to want to, you know, kind of push people put in ourselves, right? push ourselves and others kind of through into let's activate. And, um, and what can happen is that place in us that does feel some despair and sadness and anxiety can kind of like still be there and kind of slow things down and, and um, derail our energies a bit. It's much healthier and more resilient as human beings to, to have it all there, right? To be able to relate with our experiences sort of, um, almost in a a more compassionate way to say, I'm feeling some, you know, I am feeling a lot of despair right now and and that's okay. That's just where I am right now and trust that, you know, that will actually shift and trust that it's okay and natural for all of us to have those feelings. And that's the kind of, that's what I felt like was kind of missing in a lot of political discourse for the past several months was sort of a lack. Unfortunately, that was done really well by Trump's campaign. You know, they really named the affect. They named the, you know, what was going on for people, anxiety and anger and fear. They, they like called it out and, uh, and, you know, they knew how to use it, how to work with that. And I think it's really healthy for our movement to develop a more healthy relationship with the, uh, the emotional kind of uh, terrain of what it means to come to terms with our world because that's what we're we're needing to sort of lead and inspire others to do that as well and if we're kind of pushing those bad feelings away or those you know those unwanted feelings away that doesn't really help right does that make sense yeah no i, I th- thank you for that because um it's something that you know i I, again, like from my speaking from my own experience, you push the anxiety away 
but you know it's going to come back eventually and you're just sort of on edge waiting for it to come back and it's just this cycle that keeps eating at you at least for me um and in without for me without a way to 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 share that experience or to to know that it is socially appropriate to talk about it exactly um, maybe on on twitter or something i'll say like wow uh, like this is really scary what what the science study says or something like that then i'll get you know 14 trolls come back and say like oh wow you're crying again look at you like and it's just like okay well now i know i've been reinforced not to ever talk about this uh, so uh. um so what so from your opinion i know that 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 um that this is a a really important thing too what happens when we talk about the anxiety Oh my gosh, it's very healthy. <laughs> um, so what happens, there's a, there's a lot of things that happen when we talk about the anxiety. One is um, there's something really powerful about hearing ourselves um, express or, you know, in writing or speaking to, to kind of hear ourselves speak what's true for us. So that's that's one thing that that's quite powerful. Um, often when I give presentations, I'll ask people at the very beginning to kind of just share where are they at, how are they feeling, and it changes the whole um, energy and field in the room. People are more present and more open when we kind of get that out of the way, when people can just kind of, and we did that last night in Amsterdam, and it was really amazing um, to, to hear people just speak very openly and about where they were at. Um, the, Do you mind sharing anything that that you that you heard last night? Well, that's relevant. Yeah. So we, you know, it was a group of about twenty two hundred. Sorry. So it was a group of about two hundred young people. Well, actually, it was very mixed ages, but a lot of young people. And um, we started out with um, responses like terrified and scared and sad and confused but there was something that happened the you know as people continued to share it started shifting a bit and you know people started saying a bit more things like um, motivated and angry and um, hopeful and what was happening is is the power of conversation and the power of sharing Especially, it's really important to clarify in a space where you know it's safe to do um, that. Which is not Twitter. <laughs> which, yeah, exactly. Which might not be Twitter. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so what I heard is, is that as people heard one another sharing, uh, their own responses started shifting and actually started getting energy and getting support from that so that it actually kind of ended up moving towards I'm feeling hopeful. You know, I think some person said towards the end, I feel hopeful hearing everyone else. And that's beautiful because that is exactly kind of, you know, what's so amazing about conversation. Conversation is one of the most powerful mechanisms for behavior change that we're just beginning to understand how to do well, how to do skillfully, that it's not just having a conversation, it's actually what kinds of conversations that really support our, our, our abilities, you know, to, to feel more whole and, and uh, strong and resilient, which is what we need. Mm -hmm. I, I really think that um, these are such important uh, concepts and it gives, 
people the ability to to say, you know, I, I may not be able to afford solar panels for my house or a Tesla or um, or or I feel I feel so uh, so much, you know, fear about joining a protest. I don't want to do that. I don't have any money to donate. Um, but I can talk about what I feel with my friends and talk about what I hope to see for the future for our country. And then maybe we can sort of brainstorm things that we can do together to 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 build upon our our, our desires. Um, yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, that's that's a beautiful articulation of exactly what we you know what could happen is exactly that. That's that's it. You know, and and hearing you speak, it made me kind of have this thought about what would it look like if the climate movement was really about love? Like really, like really. Yeah, I mean, well, this podcast is all about love, so we're starting, we're starting there. So, um, but but yeah, I mean, and I I want to ask you something really, um, um, sort of blunt then uh, about my own uh, reporting is that I have noticed this shift towards talking about um, justice and talking about human rights and talking, you know, with the Pope's um, words last year, um, reframing the climate movement as more of like a justice movement and saying we're at the verge of some potentially crazy shit that might happen in our lifetimes and we need to be able to um, understand that there are fundamental, fundamentally unjust structures in our society that are in, that are causing this to happen and perpetuating it. And, and I think somehow that makes me more energized than saying, you know, the big ugly fossil fuel companies are designed to like destroy you and we need to stop the pipelines. And that doesn't to me seem as energizing for me personally, but I know I'm just one person. Um, but I, I know that the, of course we need to stop um, emitting fossil fuels as soon as possible, but we also need to start thinking about supporting other humans around the planet that are going to be in for a hard time. I, I don't know. I'm struggling with my own writing and how to frame this moment where we're at right now. So especially now with Trump um, as a president, I think that there is this realization that we will probably not be able to reach that uh, agreed upon two degree C goal. Um, it, and so maybe sort of gearing up for maybe some uh, greater impacts than we thought. But also, um, I've seen this week in a lot of conversations that there is much more energy now than there was this time last week um, about climate change. I think it's one of the main things people are talking about as a consequence of his presidency. I don't know if that's just my little bubble, but it feels like it's something that is that people are paying attention to maybe more than ever before this week. Um, that's just my um, my perception right now. So I, I do think that it's sort of an opportunity um, to sort of think about what the what the messages is what the messages from the environmental movement should be um, to be most effective from this point on. If you had one uh, sort of overall message for the environmental um, community. And I'm thinking of like Sierra Club and 350.org and the major environmental organizations that um, sort of control the conversation in some ways. 
what what's the sort of message that they should be saying right now in a, now that Trump is president and now that we have um, maybe a little bit different setting for our work? Mm-hmm. They should be leading with a message that is ideally demonstrating tremendous empathy and understanding of where people are at, including their experiences of um, feeling defeated, uh, feeling despair, feeling sad, feeling confused, to be able to address that and acknowledge it head on and not be afraid to do that, to position themselves and their roles as entities that are about supporting people and, um, and again, you know, cultivating the conditions for people to engage and experience themselves as being part of something much bigger than just ourselves as individuals and then frame the work as you know our opportunity to be magical you know our our opportunity humans are you know kind of respond to the uh the the challenge and the the opportunity to kind of show up and and rise above and and it's not just americans that have that right so so to frame it in terms of this is our moment, this is our time to really, this is what power looks like. We're redefining what power looks like right now and you are part of that. So that's the message I would want to see coming out, but you, you can't get to that message unless you also acknowledge the other side, which is what I mentioned before. You can't, you can't skip that and you can't bypass that. You've got to create, you know, more of what can be called a human-centered or, a, you know, an empathy kind of centered approach because environmental issues are really emotionally complicated. And, and that's the one thing that, you know, we don't seem to have fully understood. These are very emotional, uh, complex issues for anyone of any age to come to terms with, and everyone has their own coping mechanisms, right? We all know people in our lives who demonstrate incredible resilience, who, you know, those same people who are working in these organizations or they're entrepreneurs or they're, you know, housewives, whatever people are doing who, who seem to um, demonstrate, you know, a lot of resilience, a lot of ability to kind of stay engaged stay active in the face of what's going on. But what we need right now is to really step that up. You know, we really need to step up the, the dial up the compassion. And when I say that, you know, I don't mean be soft and, and you know, fuzzy and touchy feely. I just mean be human, you know, just be human and say, look, this is, this is hard, this is scary, but that's why we exist. And that's why we're here and we can't do this without you. And even though you might feel powerless and you might feel like things are way bigger, um, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like to really address explicitly the paradox of our situation, that's how they will connect with people. And that's how they will bring more people on who don't necessarily see themselves as belonging or, you know, being a quote unquote environmentalist. It's time to really, explode those barriers that keep people from you know getting involved which often have to do with identity right mm -hmm. so i really see these organizations as being in such a such a, a 
um, a role and a position right now that um, is so critical. And, um, you know, that's how I see it needs to go. And I honestly think that if it doesn't go that way, we really are in for a much harder time. And that's our show. If you like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. And as always, please feel free to hit us up with your thoughts on future guests or show ideas or pretty much anything. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail. And you can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. So one final note, our co-host Andy Revkin accepted a job this week at ProPublica. He'll be moving on from 21 years at the New York Times, uh, writing about in the environment and climate change and human relation to the planet in this weird, weird time that we are living in right now. So uh, please join with me in wishing him uh, your very best. For Jacqueline, Andy, and our producer, Stephen Lacey, I'm Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd like to thank Arcadia Power for supporting the Warmer Guards podcast. Arcadia's game-changing technology platform is giving anyone who pays a power bill the ability to go solar and to save. No need for a rooftop. With Arcadia, you can subscribe to panels nationwide, get savings on your monthly bill, and if you move, your savings will move to your next utility. Reduce your impact and save with Arcadia's Community Solar. Learn more at arcadiapower.com solar.